You're listening to The Dat Project. I'm your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth. And I'm your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. The Dat Project is a podcast that explores politics and culture through Dat, the Black man's most nuanced and telling gesture. You know, I told my friend that tagline, and he says, what does that mean through the lens of Dat? Good question. We see DAP as a greeting and a signifier, a quick way for Black men to say, I see you. So politics and culture through the lens of DAP means through the experience and perspective of Black men, by Black men. Do we talk about DAP? For sure. So shout out to my homie, the homie, Tony Sutton for prompting that clarification. And in season three of the DAP Project, we're asking one central question. How do we come back better after 2020? How do we come back bolder? You know, the status quo isn't working, been known that. So we want to use our radical imagination to consider what our world could look like with justice and joy at the center. We're talking with people, mostly black folk who are doing the work. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science presented the 2021 Oscar Awards earlier this week. Historically, having earned the hashtag of Oscar so white from its lack of recognizing diverse talent, a reflection about the award show rarely would deserve mention on a platform like the DAP Project. This year, however, is one of those rare occasions where the mention of the Oscars is TDP worthy. And, shall I predict and hope for, annual praise being warranted from this year forward. From the stellar performances of decades past, from Sidney Portier, Hattie McDaniel, Lou Gossett Jr., and Whoopi Goldberg, to the long-standing work of Spike Lee and John Singleton, Oscar nominations and wins have been few and far between for Black people. As of late, thanks to streaming services like YouTube, providing an outlet for shows like Awkward Black Girl from Issa Rae, to Netflix providing a platform to many original and independent productions, like one of the Oscar winners for Best Short Action Film, Two Distant Strangers. Black Hollywood can no longer be ignored. Their brilliant stories and talent that represent such a mighty group of people, Black folks, cannot be overlooked. Earlier this week, Daniel Kaluuya took home an Oscar statue for his portrayal of Chairman Fred Hampton of the Chicago Black Panther Party. He gave an amazing performance and earned a well-deserved win. This acting triumph did not quite redeem the Academy for denying Denzel Washington his trophy for his portrayal of Malcolm X in 1992. But we, nonetheless, are beginning a new chapter of recognizing the Black writers, directors, actors, and producers for their amazing talent and creative work, work that proves the representation matters. I hope everyone listening to this podcast has or will take a moment to view the work from the 2021 Oscar winners. And I hope to reflect on further recognition by the Academy of the outstanding work of Black Hollywood. A further hope is that Hollywood recognizes the opportunity for progress and prosperity that Black people bring to the bottom line, an opportunity in the amount of $10 billion. For evidence and support of this opportunity that has been so long foregone, check out the opinion piece from Franklin Leonard in the New York Times. A link to the article is in the show notes. In the meantime, let this quote from the write-up settle into your spirits. How many movies like Black Panther 
have we not made? And more broadly, how many lives have we lost in part because of the dehumanization of black people that Hollywood has perpetuated for more than a century? Read more from this article that came after Hollywood's proclamations to do better by black people during the Black Lives Matter protests from the summer of 2020. May George Floyd rest in peace. Tell us, Rhonda, what's been going on in the news? Well, the conviction of Derek Chauvin on three counts of murder hold him accountable for his crime, but a conviction alone will not prevent further police abuse. We've been thinking about this. In fact, during the course of the trial, Dante Wright was shot and killed by a police officer engaged in a traffic stop. We approached justice when we fundamentally changed the meaning and the structure of safety. The district, meaning Washington DC, began that journey in the height of protest against George Floyd's murder by passing emergency policing and justice legislation last summer. This was about June or July of 2020. Passed on June 10th, the emergency bill, among other provisions, established a police reform commission to examine policing practices and, quote, develop alternatives to police responses, such as community-based behavioral help or social service co-responders, among other recommendations and other tasks. The commission, which included locally elected leaders, advocates, legal experts, educators, and faith leaders, released their final report in early April, 2021. So a couple weeks ago. In the world the commission envisions based on its research and public engagement, safety begins with providing our citizens with more of the resources they need to live, such as community-based medical and mental health care, decriminalizing poverty and decriminalizing the need for care. Specifically, the commission recommends eliminating the MPD School Safety Division, essentially removing police from schools and taking other measures to limit interaction police between police and youth. Traffic violations would be handled by the Department of Transportation, not MPD. MPD would suspend crime suppression teams, which are responsible for jump outs and ban the gun recovery unit. DC's budget and specifically MPD's budget and the budget of the Department of Behavioral Health would reflect these priorities. We should see a lower budget for MPD and a higher budget for Department of Behavioral Health. The report proposes that public safety be the responsibility of the many and not just the few. This is where citizens have to do some soul searching, me included, you included. Think about a time when you felt safe and police were nowhere to be seen. What was there instead? Were you with people who had the things they needed to live well? A home, a way to make a living, friends? Those are the things that keep us safe. For us to achieve justice as a society, we have to apply radical imagination to what safety can look like and where police fit in this picture, if at all, then engage like our life depends on it. By engage, I mean show up to meetings, 
read, learn, talk with your friends, your family, your neighbors about these issues so that you can really understand what's being proposed. If you live in the district, I encourage you to read this report linked in our show notes and ask your council member where they stand on these issues. If you live outside of the, the district, still read it to build awareness of how one city, our city, is rethinking policing and apply what's useful to where you live. This is the world that we deserve and this is the world we can build together. That's my news. Born in Connecticut, raised in Baltimore. Author, historian, and professor, G. Derek Musgrove associates death with church and feels compelled coming out of 2020 to make history even more relevant to the present moment. When cities such as the district painted Black Lives Matter on the main streets in the summer of 2020, Professor Musgrove's Black Power Map illustrates DC's rich Black political tradition from its origins in 1961 to its resurgence in 1998. In other words, we've been here. But there are cautionary lessons today's activists can apply to the current movement, which he highlights. Listen to our conversation to learn how DAP shows up in academic spaces and the music that energizes the professor to keep dropping knowledge. Big shout out to the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and President Rabowski. Let's get into it. So just starting out in the essence of the DAP project, if we may ask you, what is your earliest memory of DAP? Hmm. Uh... Probably, I mean, you know, to, to, to think about DAP expansively, probably church uh, in, in Baltimore um, at, at Bethel AME. Uh, so I, I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, we moved there when I was four years old. So most of my early memories are from, from there, not from where I was actually born, which is New Haven, Connecticut. And, you know, I just, if, you, if you, talk, you think about DAP as like sort of the, you know, the, the, the collective expression of, of kind of a black community, right? Um, then it was definitely church. Uh, you know, I, I just remember uh, the the um, the deaconesses. Uh, you know, sort of uh, all knowing me. You know, and as they're talking to my mother and talking to my father, or uh, you know, feeling like I was part of a community where we we're all sort of running around uh, in the back before service, and then getting scolded together uh, if some kids tried to go to the Seven Eleven while service was going on. Uh, and so, so I think that's that's the place. That is an amazing, I'm surprised. This is, what interview have we done, Rhonda? Like this is, 700. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and, and that just took me back to Ebenezer United Methodist Church. And you're absolutely right. Coach Todd at, at the uh, entryway to the church, uh, giving me DAP. And wow, I'm surprised church hasn't come up before. Um, uh, Derek, I went to we, a very dry church, so it would have wow. never come up. Nobody was dapping at my church. Was it Catholic? <laughs> It was something. No, it was Episcopalian. I mean, not to shade oh, Episcopalians, okay. but there was no dap. Okay. I can see that. Yeah, that's why I'm not Episcopalian anymore. <laughs> I'm George Derek Musgrove. Uh, in my professional life, I'm, I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, 
Uh, in my personal life, I'm, I'm a proud husband and father of two, uh, and I live here in DC. Why all three names when you say your name, George, Derek, Musgrove? Why the George and the Derek? So I am, uh, as far as I can record, uh, the, the sixth George Musgrove. Uh, and my firstborn son is uh, the seventh. Oh, wow. uh, and we all have different middle names. So we all go by our middle names. So my father was Gigi because he's George Gilbert. Uh, and so you only get to be George uh, if you're... Um, the oldest at the time uh and so i've always gone by derek um mm. so so i sort of give you my legal name and then you know we convert <laughs> to the name I'm, I'm used to being uh, referred to as is there a nickname in there no that you know derek is is the effective nickname um because because the proper name is is george um yeah. and i've never been called george outside of a sort of environment where someone was calling for me in a, you know, at a, at a, a, a hospital or something um, mm. in my life. I've always been there. Mm. It's official. So pre-COVID, um, does that show up in the world of academia or higher ed among students or, or your fellow professors? Oh, God, yes. Uh, so I'll start with professors and then talk about students. Um, so, you know, within the professorate, uh, African-Americans are a small group. Um, you know, one of the, the main foci of the president of UMBC, Freeman Robowski, and one of the things that brought me to UMBC as a student and then brought me back as a professor uh, was that one of, our, one of the things that we really want to do is uh, increase the numbers of, of African-Americans within the professorate. Uh, because they're so low, they're in the single digits across the board, even in the humanities where they're the highest. Uh, so when I go to conferences uh, and I see other Black historians, I know them all. Um, and it's because we all hang out together. We all you know, came up together. We met each other at conferences. And then we go back to the conferences primarily to see each other. Um, and what that also means, because uh, other professors are so important to um, legitimating and promoting your work uh, is that we all are looking out for each other. Uh, and don't get me wrong, those, those, you know, like in anything else, those, those circles expand beyond just African-Americans, but there's a certain understanding of communities. There's that there, right? Where, um, you know, there's a clear understanding that, that we're, we're in this uh, uh, with a disadvantage. And so we've got to make sure that we look out for each other. Um, with students, it's, it's, it's very similar. Um, you have a lot of schools that will bring African-Americans in and not matriculate them. Uh, and so I know the vast majority of, of African-American faculty that I've ever encountered really take it upon themselves to, uh, to look out for those students, much like the, the small number of Black professors that I encountered looked out for me. And, you know, oftentimes people will talk about is that is sort of the hidden work of the black professorate. Um, you are not just doing your sort of nine to five, uh, but you are making sure that some of your students have food or, or books, uh, or you're dragging them across the finish line because they're first generation and they just aren't coming to uh, the endeavor with the type of background and support system in their homes that some of your white students do. Um, so there's no question that that operates with students as well. Uh, you know, that's, that's a part of my everyday. In fact, that before I, I got on with you all, I was talking to um, one of the, the African-American students in our, our graduate program and, and trying to find a, 
a way forward for him as he's dealing with some difficult circumstances. So does the, how does the white gaze factor into um, exchanging depth around in spaces where, where black folks are the minority? Does that ever cross your mind? Do you ever think about it? And I bring this up because we've gotten two responses from some students um, at Princeton, guys we love, they go extra hard because they want to be big, bold, and seen. Yeah. And then other guys are like, I don't even care. It doesn't even factor into my consciousness. I'm not even thinking about it. Right. Where do you land Yeah, the, yeah the, the whole Ivy thug phenomenon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brother from Bethesda, you know, like one hundred percent go go and like wearing the the you know ad you know uh, shirts and stuff on campus. It's like, but you're from Bethesda, dog. Just because you're Princeton, you don't have to act like that. Yeah, Listen, so Derek, that is my life's mission. Okay, <laughs> to be like, but you're from Bethesda. <laughs> like, what are we doing? <laughs> now my Bethesda friends will hate me. And, and, and much respect to Bethesda, I'm sure there's someone there that's hardcore, right? Um, but there's um. Uh, yourself. Uh, but uh, there's, you know, I, I have to admit that I'm a child of privilege in this regard. Um, you know, you have to remember that I go to, uh, I went to and I now teach at a university where the nerds on campus are the black kids. Um, the nerd in chief on campus, the president, is a, is a black guy. Um, the re very reason that the school is, is mentioned the, the very driver of our academic success is the Meyerhoff Scholars Program, which started off as a scholarship program specifically for black men in 1988, and then was expanded uh, to women and then was opened up to, to non-black folks over time. Um, so without those black people, the school just isn't, it's not as impressive as it has become, right? And so coming out of that environment, I don't think much about the white gaze um, because like, who cares what they think? Like, we're running the show here, right? Um, that you add to that that I'm, I'm very light-skinned, right? Um, you know, I, I did a, a, a postdoc in Pittsburgh. I get, get in a cab, and the cab driver starts talking to me about all these Negroes, and, you know, I can't mm. you know, That's awkward. <laughs> you know, that, happened, that happened in Pittsburgh. That happened in Hartford. That happened in New York, right? And New York was a weird one, right? Because, like, it's New York. Um, mm. So, so, you know, there's also that odd aspect of it, right? I mean, my, my blackness is, is, you know, not something since college that I've ever questioned, that I've ever been uncomfortable with, but other people's uh, sort of uh, understanding it and seeing it um, is, is a, is a crapshoot, especially if I'm not speaking or if I'm not speaking specifically about what I study, which is black folks. Um, so I think all that factors in, and I just, I decided a long time ago, primarily on my father's advice, who's even lighter than me, um, just to not care. Um, so, so I, I do know it's out there. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, um, not ignorant of, of the gaze and of the problems that it causes for a lot of my colleagues and friends and every once in a while for me, but, but generally I'm in spaces where it, it I just don't care. You're going to call that the and, and I, think, I think it's a healthy way to live, you know, <laughs> if, if you have the option. 
absolutely. absolutely. You're like, I got enough issues on my own. <laughs> There's enough <laughs> that, you know. There's stuff to deal with here. You know? I'm, yeah, I'm, I might be able to relate to some of those issues that you just articulated. I've never had someone talk about the Negroes in front of me, but I do understand the, uh, you know, the complexion question, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> podcast explores that as um, as meaning in everyday life. And one of the meanings is I see you, is how we think about it. And as much as the Black Power map is for the viewer to look at the sites of Black Power, I feel like you are giving the activists an I see you. I feel like you're reaching back into history to give them that. Is that what's happening here? Is that one way to, to look at your role in constructing the Black Power Map? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so let me, let me step back and say this. So, you know, much of my scholarly endeavor since I entered graduate school was an effort to understand my parents' generation. So, so my mother is uh, the author of Ashanti to Zulu, which is a children's book came out uh, in 1969 and it was well, the first children's book that had that's focused on African uh, characters um, had an African-American author. And it was really part of this effort for, for the large publishing companies to move away from books like Little Black Sambo, which was a staple children's book when my mother was in grade school. And so you're only talking about the decade before, right? Um, and so I, I wanted to understand sort of what she was seeing and, um, uh, you know, Kind of why she she thought that that was such an important uh, um, uh, you know sort of thing to undertake, and I also you know know that she did a lot of research for Ashanti Zulu in Ghana uh, as uh, you know it was wrestling with the difficulties of independence, uh, and then of course she had gone across the border into Nigeria uh, on the eve of the Biafran War, and so I was trying to understand this world that she was seeing as as she was joining the Black Arts Movement. And then my father uh, had worked with the Panthers in New Haven and was sort of a Black Power New Left activist. He had founded the Black Student Union at UConn, uh, got an FBI dossier as, as a result of that. Um, and so this was just sort of, you know, all of this, wh whether it's my, my books or, or the website, is, is an effort to understand what they were doing and how successful they were. Um, and then there's, of course, the larger circle of people of which they were a part. Um, so if you, you really dig into the map, you'll see a lot of my mom's and my dad's friends. Uh, so there's an entry on the 1980 Artists Conference here in uh, D.C. Well, the organizer was a woman by the name of Barbara Hudson from Connecticut, who was one of my mom's lifelong friends, uh, passed away a couple of years ago, and, and a wonderful sort of art administrator. Um, you can find the, the Southern African News Service, well, a, a member of the Southern African News Service, was Cheryl Gardner, uh, you know, a woman who uh, was uh, in my life from the time that I was conceived. Uh, she was pregnant with her son, who is 46, the same time my mother was pregnant with me, and I'm 46, right? Um, and her husband was, was the founder of the Center for Black Education, which is also in the map. And so a, a great deal of, of the actual entries in the map are, are still part of that process of understanding who my parents were. And, and you can add in the Million Man March. I was in South Africa on a study abroad at the time, so my mom went in my place, which is quite weird because you know it's a Million Man March. <laughs> uh, I was there too. 
and, and I ended up going to the Million Woman March, uh, you know, because she couldn't go. She was in Ghana at the time. Um, and so, you know, it, there, there's that. Um, and then there are the, the sort of activists themselves who are still around in the city, um, many of whom I know and who've showed me a number of kindnesses. Um, and this project actually started off um, as like something I wanted to do that was going to focus on them. So as I explored the map, I saw more than a few familiar locations. My great uncle is Gaston Neal, who's the co-founder of wow. the, the New School. Yeah. yeah so as I'm um, looking over the map and I see his name pop up, I'm like having this I don't know, this flashback, it's crazy. And um, a neighbor also attended Roots Activity Learning Center. Wow. Our family shopped at Pyramid Bookstore. So the map generated tremendous nostalgia as I, as I looked it over. But there was one event that really surprised me and it was the role of black women in the struggle conference mm. where the poet Amir Baraka yeah, yeah you, you feel where this is going, right? Yeah, I do. I do. Yeah, so Amiri Baraka, <clears throat> Francis Cress Welsing of Howard University, June Johnson of the African Liberation Support Committee, debate whether they should follow men or whether the movement should end its sexist practices. Yeah. yeah. We're living in a moment where three women basically catalyzed a global movement, the women behind uh, Black Lives Matter. Sure. But clearly that was not the perspective at the time. Why? <laughs> what was what was happening there? Help us understand. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's that a moment. You know, and, and for those folks who visit the map, I mean, the exchanges are, are just in really amazing, particularly from our current vantage, right? Um, and, and especially, oddly enough, Francis Cress Welsing's, a woman's, you know, sort of pitch there is, is that, you know, like white feminists are dangerous. Like we got to get off this feminist thing and focus on black nationalism. Um, and I think well, the, the core of that is, is that, you know, coming out of the 60s, um, in, in our popular conversations, um, black was understood as male and uh, feminist was understood as white. And so the, the conversation, and by the way, that, was, that, was, that wasn't sort of like a, a total misnomer. I mean, when it came right down to it, Black power organizations were, particularly the national ones, principally dominated by men. And if you're thinking about some of the cultural nationalist organizations um, by very conservative men who honestly believed that a core to Black male liberation was getting black women to play their proper role in supporting black men, right? And that's that's people like um, uh, Amiri Baraka for a time when he was following Ron Karenga, uh, and definitely Ron Karenga. Um, uh, but then, but then also people like Louis Farrakhan, right, and, and members of the Nation of Islam. Um, and then you had you know sort of black women who are articulating the, the fact that this is a problem for them, right? Uh, that uh, this is, you know, that this, this basic notion of how things work erases them, right? Um, if you're black, you're a male. If you're, if you're white, you're a woman. So, so what's up with, what's, what does it mean if you're a black woman? It seems like both of these organizations just ignore you. Uh, and you have people like Michelle Wallace begin 
beginning, beginning to say, look, you know, black women, if they're really going to deal with all of the oppressions that um, they're facing, they're essentially going to have to fight everybody, not just sort of the oppressor, you know, like the cops, white men, you know, the state, but black men in black power organizations and white women in, in feminist organizations literally have to fight everybody to create space for themselves. And of course, by late decade, folks are talking about a triple oppression. They're talking about identity politics as a politics where in which black women do not have to ignore their own identity in order to be part of a movement, right? That, that the movements they're a part of should in fact acknowledge who they are and what they experience. Poor black female, sometimes lesbian, right? For those who are articulating the concept. Um, and so these conversations are happening in the late seventies and you have holdovers from the sixties. Uh, and, you know, so, so it seems really jarring to us, but that conversation, oddly enough, continues into the eighties, which are a more socially conservative time. And what a lot of, you know, black male organizations, particularly um, the Nation of Islam, but even um, the Rainbow Coalition at times, and even the National Council of Negro Women at times, oddly enough, um, will say that you know, one of the reasons in the 80s that the black family is in such bad shape is because uh, black women aren't sort of you know, properly fulfilling their roles as wives and mothers. Now, it's tricky because if you listen to the National Council of Negro Women, they are not putting forward a sexist statement. They're effectively saying, you know, we can't fulfill that role because black men aren't stepping up. Like they're the problem and they're keeping us from filling a more traditional family role, right? The Nation of Islam is in fact saying, you know, black women are screwing up and they're making it harder on men who are also having a problem, right? So it, it's really quite complicated in that, that respect, but that debate continues all the way through uh, into the early 20th century. And if you look closely at the, re the, the writings of a lot of these Black Lives Matter activists, um, they're saying, you know, a lot of my political identity, I defined against um, this notion that black women or queers or, or um, you know, two-spirit people or, or gay men should sort of sit down and shut up and let the real men fight the battle in black organizations. No, you know, we are going to put together a type of politics that deals with all of us uh, and we're not taking a back seat so like a black man can find his freedom. Um, we're, if we find freedom for ourselves, we get freedom for everybody. It's amazing how being born in a different generation can cause you to look back at those debates and just wonder, how could you ever have formed your mouth to say something like that? <laughs> that sounds so archaic, particularly now when the Black woman is uplifted and celebrated, we have these chance to trust Black women, elect Black women. And so to hear that there was an 800 person conference that was debating the question of the role of Black women takes our, our mindset just uh, it's it's very jarring to, yeah, to consider that was the that that was the case. So a while back, I toured uh, DC with Anthony Browder. Are you familiar with Tony Browder's work? I am. Uh, yeah. Um, and as you know, he has a, a real bend on. Uh, he highlights ancient Egyptian influence on the founding fathers of the of America, as well as their acknowledgement of the Nile Valley origins of civilization. And um, on that tour, you know, he points out things at the Capitol. He points out the design of the city and all of that kind of relating to uh, parts of Egypt 
Um, and I imagine uh, in looking up the video on the new school in DC, I'd imagine that, you know, a lot of the teachings uh, that, that he has taught probably showed up there uh, back in the days. But in your work, does Egyptology or, or the influence of other continents or specifically Egypt or other parts of Africa show up very much? So, so not in my current work, but, but Egyptology actually had a huge influence on me and, and on my decision to become a historian. So, I mean, keep in mind, I'm coming of age in the 1990s, the late 1980s, 1990s. And, uh, you know, I actually met Anthony as a college student when I was working for the Congressional Black, uh, I'm sorry, the, the, the Children's Defense Fund. And I, I taught in their freedom school programs. And so Anthony would come out and do workshops uh, for the interns. And so I, I met him in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, I think in 1995 or six. Um, and I had already at that point, by the time I bumped into Anthony, uh, read Yvonne von Sertemans, they came before Columbus. Um, and I was gobsmacked by that book. And, and you know, and, and the same thing with, with some of the other sort of um, uh, Afrocentrists of the time, you know, Chancellor Williams, um, uh, you know, and others, I, I was just, I was struck by just the breadth and the depth of their research. I mean, if you look at, they came before Columbus, which my mother had given me in high school, um, you know, he had studied everything from seed transfers, so agriculture, uh, to uh, boat building, uh, to uh, history, anthropology, sociology. I mean, it was, it was a remarkable book, though, though controversial, his thesis, it was remarkable. He'd even been able to stitch it together. Um, and one of the first things I did when I was able to get out of the country was I went to Egypt. Uh, I went on a, on a tour of Egypt in, uh, it must have been 1994. So I think right after I graduated from high school and so we went up and down the Nile from Luxor to, to Cairo. Um, and I, I realized, you know, uh, not too long after that, that I wasn't really interested in Egyptology. It, it, it felt very far from me. Uh, I realized that many of the black nationalists that were using it as sort of this, this uh, you know, sort of shining classical past for the black world were ignoring the widespread use of slavery uh, uh, by the dynasties that had built the pyramids and the Sphinx and stuff. But I nonetheless sort of, it, it nonetheless had caught me and dragged me in to a very specific type of history, which, which was what you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates called a weaponized history, right? It was a history made for fighting white supremacy. Mm. Um, the, the very reason that black folks are so interested in Egypt, um, you know, really starting in the, the, the 1920s uh, where the, the Harlem Renaissance uh, poets and, and authors and um, uh, uh, you know, sort of painters be really focused on the discoveries happening in, in the Valley of the Kings uh, around, I think it was King Tut's tomb is, is discovered in like 22 or something. Um, and you, see, you start to see all this, 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 uh, this Egyptian iconography showing up in the Harlem Renaissance and the new Negro uh, uh, artwork. Um, and part of that was just to say that like black people have a great past. We're, we're, we are no different than y'all, you know, sort of Western Europeans in that regard. And so it was really that, you know, sort of usage of the history that, that I thought was fascinating. Um, it, it, was, it was not so much the content. And so when I really dug into the profession, the, the question for me was sort of what's a usable history to get black people free today? 
And my, my focus was really on sort of what my parents had done, what my parents' generation had done to overturn the segregationist order um, and how they had been defeated um, in the sort of um, you know, second redemption of the Reagan years, right? So, I mean, if you think about the civil rights movement as a, a second reconstruction, well, there was a second redemption. I mean, there was an effort to push back the gains uh, of my parents' generation. And that was really achieved through the Reagan administration, which kind of sets the term for American politics, at least down through um, uh, 2020. I think what's so fascinating about the current moment is that there's a serious effort to depart from the politics of the past uh, um, you know, 30 years or so. Um, but you know, that's where I got into it. And so Egypt was just sort of the way in, but I, I, I walked away from it pretty early on. So uh, in the past <laughs> couple of interviews uh, uh, that we've done, I, I've formed this fascination with black barbershops. <laughs> it is so legit. It is so legit. It, it is very legit. And I, I've just, you know, come to the realization that it's because I do have locks and I probably have, I haven't, been, haven't been to a barbershop uh, for legit reasons since 2000. Uh, so I probably miss it. It's probably very romanticized for me. But at the same time, I feel that the Black Barbershop is somewhat of a cultural hub for Black folks uh, historically. And, you know, I combed the map and I, I took baby steps and I, I, I may have missed the barbershop, but, but along with the former, or, former organizations and buildings and spaces um, that the Black Power movement uh, took space in, did you ever find that barbershops kind of took that space as well? Um, in the Black Power movement, I, I didn't see it. You know, you, you'd have barbers who were civil rights activists uh, during the 40s and 50s in DC. Um, you'd absolutely have uh, barbers who were sort of um, prominent members of the Black community in the late 19th century uh, because it was, it was a really good job uh, at that time. You could make a good amount of money, primarily serving a, a, a segregated clientele in the city. And this is like the eight, late 1800s. Um, but Black Power, no, not, not in the same way. Um, it might just be because everybody was just growing their hair out. I mean, you know, there wasn't, too. there wasn't too much work for him at that time, I guess. <laughs> Derek, you just broke his heart. Heartbroken. I mean, I was all excited. Yeah. I thought you were going to let me talk about my barber, you know? <laughs> so, I was like, oh, well, man, let do. me tell you about my man, Samal. You know, you know, I wanted you to tell me about some uh, barbershops, actual speakeasies where there's this back room where they have these <laughs> wonderful secret meetings, you know, but. Uh. He really wanted to hear that they were a hub of culture. <laughs> Turning away from these real black man issues, let's move to uh, the year that was 2020. Mm -hmm. How did you experience last year as a historian, as a person who had to stay at home? But we're very curious from your political lens, how you experienced 2020, what you observed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so 2020 was um, in so many ways just a shock. Uh, personally and politically, um, even physically. Um, so, I mean, of course, personally, the, the, the issue was that, you know, all of a sudden I'm in my house with my children uh, trying to both work and, and you know, be a part-time teacher. And 
that was just difficult. And then there was, of course, the ever-present fear that you know uh, one of us would get a deadly disease. Uh, and so that was that was frightening. Um, in the, from the political side, um, I, I think I, I had gone into 2020 sort of agreeing with Kianga Yamada Taylor, who had written a, a, a great article uh, talking about sort of the, 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 the death of Black Lives Matter, the end of Black Lives Matter, right, as a movement. And so she wasn't saying that, that like Black Lives Matter is a series of organizations were going to go away, but that in fact, um, you know, the, the movement had sort of simmered down into just a, a series of organizations, right? Um, uh, and so, and I agreed with her. I mean, that, that, was, that was what was happening. Um, you know, folks were sort of raising money, you know, starting to look like, you know, foundations and, and sort of nonprofits. Um, the street protests had cooled down. And then, boom, you know, June comes. Um, and, you know, and I've been following, uh, you know, Wes Lowry's reporting. I mean, it was, there was no question that the, the number of police killings of African-Americans had uh, stopped. They hadn't, right? Um, but there was nothing like the Walter Scott video. Um, there, there was nothing um, like what had happened to Sandra Bland. And, and then you get George Floyd and my God, um, it, it was, I, I don't think I've ever watched the video all the way through. Um, and so the way I experienced, you know, that moment was the re personally, it, it was the return of that you sort of low simmering anger, right, of, of, of a kind of helplessness, right, um, uh, you know, not knowing what exactly to do, um, you know, and being afraid uh, in some ways. Um, from a professional standpoint, I, I mean, I just started working. Um, People started calling Chris, my co-author of Chocolate City, and I, and just said, you know, um, tell us about, you know, the relationship between the cops and the black community in D.C. And so we wrote an article, um, you know, uh, uh, come to my organization and tell us about it in person. And so we'd show up and do a, a WebEx chat or something. And so, you know, from a professional standpoint, I was just busy, you know, sort of trying to give a historical background to what was happening in that moment. Um, and then, of course, uh, it inspired my, my writing. I was trying to figure out sort of where where we were and, and what what was what was what what was happening outside the window meant. Uh, and I got a little too involved, I think, in the in trying to understand the efforts to pull down the Emancipation Statue in uh, Lincoln Park. Um, so there's a young man from Harvard. Um, who had founded a group wh whose sole purpose was to tear down that statue. And this was, you know, around the time that, that folks were attempting to tear down the, um, uh, the Jackson statue in Lafayette Square. Uh, they actually did tear down um, the statue of a very obscure gentleman named Albert Pike, who was, the statue is really honors him as one of the, 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 the key members of the expansion of Freemasonry in the country. But he was, before he became a prominent Mason, a Confederate general. Um, and so it was the only statue to a Confederate general inside the city limits. You know, the, the, the other big statues of Confederates are in Arlington Cemetery um, in what I think is just a, a um, sacrilegious uh, sort of area of the, um, um, you know, national cemetery that is dedicated to Confederate soldiers and has a huge statue in the middle of it um, celebrating the lost cause. 
and so, you know, people pulled the Pike statue down. But the Emancipation statue for me was difficult because I sort of understood the history that it was the first bronze statue erected by freed African Americans, paid for them, paid for by them. It was the first uh, statue uh, uh, erected in the country that we could find that depicted an African-American man. Um, and, you know, African-Americans, whether it was Frederick Douglass who was speaking before a joint, essentially uh, most of the cabinet when the statue was unveiled, or if it was Emancipation Day marchers who would detour for miles just to march around the statue every year from the 1870s to 1900. Um, or if it was people like Loretta Carter Haynes, who when she attempted to bring back Emancipation Day in the 1990s, uh, began her campaign by laying a wreath at the Emancipation uh, statue every year on Emancipation Day. Um, I knew that, that, that Black folks, and, and more recently, specifically Black women, had breathed a lot of life and a lot of meaning into that statue, despite its iconography. Uh, it, I mean, it's it's... It's an ugly statue. It's it's, um, it's Lincoln standing over a, a half-naked uh, Archer Alexander, who was a, a man who had run to secure his own freedom in St. Louis. Um, and it appears that, that Lincoln is sort of freeing him. He has his hand outstretched over him. And uh, the fact of the matter is that um, Archer Alexander um, actually defied Lincoln by running to freedom in St. Louis because Missouri was a was still part of the Union. It was not. It did not secede. And so the, the, the enslaved people in Missouri should not have been freed until uh, the 13th Amendment in 1865. And Alexander took his life into his own hands and ran away early in the war. And if it had been up to Lincoln, not the abolitionist generals who were on the ground in St. Louis, Archer Alexander would have been returned to slavery. So the statue is also historically inaccurate. And so the, it's, it's a bundle of contradictions. And what I saw among the people who were marching and who were trying to tear it down was something that I had to admire and, and had to understand the tremendous benefit of. And that was a people who were heightening the contradictions. Like, look, what's before us is black and white, right? This statue, you know, sort of as, as they were saying, you know, is anti-black based on its, its imagery. And that, that insistence and that, that demand that we break away from, from a, a, a racist past is what has gotten us to this present moment, right? I mean, Derek Chauvin doesn't go to jail without that insistence, without people, you know, burning stuff down and, and chanting and lying down on highways, um, uh, you know, and so I appreciated that about the folks who at the statue. But as a historian, and particularly as a DC resident, I struggled because I knew, for instance, that the National Council of Negro Women um, wanted that statue to stay there when they put up the statue of Mary McLeod Bethune at the other end of the park. Uh, and in fact, they had the entire park landscaped. Uh, they turned the Emancipation Memorial towards Mary McLeod Bethune so they faced each other. Um, and that was, you know, Black women in the 1970s who had done that. I knew Loretta Carter Haynes valued that statue. Um, uh, God rest her soul, when she tried to uh, bring back Emancipation Day. And so I struggled with sort of that, that desire to still have a part of our past that is ugly, but is nonetheless an important element of who we are, that, I, that as a historian, particularly, I wanted us to maintain and to remember, right? And so, you know, I think what, what 
2020 did for me in the end was um, really helped me to situate myself in time um, and to try and understand myself in relationship to the generations uh, above me and, and below me. Um, and, and to, and it freed me a little bit to be a bit more um, uh, sort of presentist, which, which historians think of as a dirty word, right? I mean, but, mm-hmm. but to, to really think about um, the, the material effects of my scholarship right here and now, right? Um, and so I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm at UMBC where, you know, folks are fine with me being sort of a public facing intellectual. And um, I already had a lot of elements of that going into 2020. And so it's not like anybody was surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but 2020 has really made me want to find that the contemporary relevance for the history that I'm writing, I think in a way that um, I always did, but I didn't have that, that need um, because there wasn't a, there wasn't sort of a movement out there pushing me to try and be relevant um, in the moment. That takes me to a quote that um, I read in an article from the DCist where you said, I'm hoping that local Black Lives Matter activists will look at this, meaning the Black Power Map, and do a compare and contrast and take the good and leave the bad of the previous moment. It made me curious about what you thought was good and what you thought was bad about the previous moment. And then I also wondered if you created this tool with those activists specifically in mind. Yeah, so I so I didn't um, create it with them in mind. I should I should start with that. I mean, I I, um, I began the map. I conceived the map before. Um, I think right after uh, Black Lives Matter sort of became a national movement, two thousand fourteen or so, um, and uh, I sort of set it aside because I was doing other projects, and I, I picked it back up really when when BLM was kind of in retreat. Uh, you know, to two thousand seventeen, two thousand eighteen. Um, and so I, I finished it when I, I didn't think there were there was going to be a sort of a mobilized you know movement uh, a moment where I'd be speaking to activists, um, and so I really did it to understand my parents' generation, like like sort of sticking with that that um, that desire, um, and then of course you know everything happened in in 2020, and what I saw uh, was a lot of young people who were doing what a lot of young people in the 60s were doing, which is essentially saying like, we're gonna remake the world and we're not gonna worry too much about what happened before. Um, and so part of, part of what I wanted to do is just say, you know, there's a really important history that you wanna ground yourself in, right? Um, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of stuff out there that's occurred that you can sort of pick up and, and use as a model. Um, and then what I also wanted to do uh, is, is sort of present the map as a cautionary tale, right? Uh, you know, sort of inspiration is the first hand uh, in instruction. But then cautionary tale is to say like, look, um, sectarian infighting um, was one of the, the major downfalls of the, the Black Power Movement. Um, sexism, major downfall of the Black Power Movement. Um, the FBI. Say again. The FBI. 
Uh, yeah, no, that was my that was my next one. Like, okay. Because <laughs> when I read the COINTELPRO report, they seem yeah, to yeah, no, opening to police repression. No, you're absolutely right, and you know, and I think one of the interesting things about talking about black power as a generational sort of uh, political impulse, right? I mean, people typically talk about the movement, which in the map I date from 1966 to 1976, right? Um, it's about 10 solid years of, of movement activism, and then it begins to decline. I mean, one, because you can't live on, on you know, sort of the, um, the, the, the knife's edge forever. Um, and so movements have a lifespan, right? But the other is, is because of that, that serious police repression, which is quite uh, extreme here in DC because it's the nation's capital, um, but also just sectarian infighting. I mean, people fought with each other in a lot of people ended up walking away from the organizations they had built because of that, that infighting. And of course, you can't separate stuff out, right? I mean, some of the, the um, what the FBI and the MPD were doing was getting people to fight with each other. But I don't want to let the activists off the hook, right? Um, you know, it's a combination. Uh, and I, I wanted to, to sort of be able to say to activists, like, look, you know, this is what went wrong. Like, you know, see if you can figure out how to avoid it in this current moment. I'm not going to tell you how, right? That's not my job as a historian, but I can at least tell you what happened before and you can learn the lessons from these earlier moments. Um, and, you know, the, in the map, you can actually see people trying to do that in the 80s and 90s, right? So you have the Black Power Movement in 66 to 76, but then you have what I call the Black Power Resurgence of roughly 1980 to 1997 or 98. And you see people in 1997, 98 saying, okay, you know, um, let's do these things that the older activists did, but let's not do this. Um, so for instance, I, I just wrote an article, um, I guess about a year and a half, two years ago called There Is No New Black Panther Party, where it was a bunch of activists around the country who tried to bring back the Black Panther Party. And one of the things that they were particularly worried about for obvious reasons was, was uh, law enforcement infiltration. And so what you saw in the records of a group out in LA called the, the, the New Panther Vanguard movement um, was that everyone had to join officially and they had to go through a background check. And if they didn't fill out uh, all of the background information properly so that the, the, the group could vet them, they were actually just, they, they were not allowed to join the group, right? And so they were very specific in, in learning that lesson about the earlier moment. And so, you know, thinking through that, looking at the transition from the 60s and 70s to the 80s and 90s, you know, I see an opportunity for folks in, you know, the teens and in the 20s to do something similar. Uh, and I'm not going to tell them sort of what to adopt and what to avoid. It's just to say, this is what you got, um, you know, see what you can learn from it. So the map was released in February of 2021, one year after 2020. And I think what you just hit on was how the map helps us to come back better and to come back bolder with an understanding of how movements were destroyed in the past, how they imploded. And so one of the questions I think people have now is how can the movement be sustained? How can the activity be sustained, but even in the last couple of months, we've seen a lot of that activity diminish, but the reason for the activity is still very much present and 
and relevant. So can you tell us a little bit about that, how we use this map to come back bolder and how to sustain a protest or is it even possible to sustain a level of activity that actually causes the kind of change that some might would say is responsible for Derek Chauvin's conviction yesterday? Right, right. No, that's a great question, Rhonda. I'm not sure I can answer it uh, in any uh, really good way. Um, you know, one of the things I, I'm working through in this new book project that I'm working on in, 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 in the map is, um, you know, not fetishizing uh, movement activism. So my feeling, uh, and I think the feeling of some of the people that I am studying is that it's hard to maintain movements. It's hard to maintain people in the streets. Folks have jobs, they've got families, right? They've got obligations. Um, facing down the cops is scary, right? Um, it's dangerous. Uh, and so if you can get what you need through the sort of mainstream um, levers of power, but the, 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 the typical ways in which um, you know, more privileged Americans are able to access power, then all the better, right? Uh, and there have been moments in this city's history where you could, um, you know, the, the movement effectively, you know, we're talking about the Black Power movement, the movement effectively creates and then populates the city government in the 1970s. And so you've got Black Power activists new left activists, anti-poverty activists, um, who are working hard uh, to uh, create a local government, which, which Congress does uh, primarily through the actions of Walter Fauntroy and, and Charlie Diggs in, in uh, the House of Representatives um, in 1974. And then they all take their seats in January 75. And once the council and the mayor are seated on the council, you have a super majority of black power, civil rights, and anti-poverty anti activists, right? I mean, you've got 13 people on the council, 11 of them, you can actually trace them back to an activist organization within just a year or two of their being elected, right? Even some of the white members like David Clark, he worked for the SCLC as an attorney. Um, and, you know, as, as, as uh, some of his colleagues used to say, David didn't even know that he was white. He thought he was black. I forgot. <laughs> I totally <laughs> forgotten, but yeah, he was. <laughs> so, so you have that. And then, of course, you know, Walter Washington is hemmed in as mayor, but Marion Barry wins in 78 and D.C. becomes the first major American city with a former black power activist as its chief executive. Right. And so what you see those people doing in office is all is, is pursuing all of the goals of the movement. Um, you know, anti-gentrification legislation, um, you know, a more robust social safety net. Um, I mean, Barry does stuff like he hires Marie Nahikian, a fascinating uh, white woman who is the founder of, of the Adams Morgan organization, which was one of the premier anti-gentrification organizations of uh, the 70s. And Marie basically spends the next three years, the first couple of years of the 1980s, um, finding ways to take houses that had been seized for taxes and give them to poor people and then give them the support that they needed in order to maintain uh, uh, those houses and build wealth, right? And so here you have the city transferring resources to poor Black people, 
right? Where the previous 170 years were all about the city facilitating the theft of resources from black people, right? Barry comes into office in 1978. He sees that 7% of the city businesses are with uh, black companies, 7% in a 70% black city, right? Mm -hmm. He basically knuckles, uh, you know, he basically sends Cortland Cox, who is, you know, hard crust, right? To go to the bureaucrats who are in charge of minority contracting. And he says, and Cortland says to them, if you guys can't, you know, triple this uh, in a couple of years, you're all fired, right? So being good bureaucrats, they, 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 uh, they increased it by five times, right? 35%. Mm -hmm by 1985. And so here you see the government doing the very things that the movement had demanded, right? Um, but at the same time, you, you know, there's all these cracks in the edifice, right? Um, you know, it's a lot easier to transfer resources to middle-class Black folks than it is to transfer resources to poor Black folks. And the Barry administration, as the mayor starts to get checked out, right, and just stops caring about reform, stops caring about carrying out that agenda and, and really begins to focus on his own personal appetites and his drug addiction um, is doing much more of, you know, sort of making sure that his friends uh, and middle-class black people are getting contracts with the city, but not worrying about growing poor, you know, poor people's uh, businesses or working class black people's businesses. Um, and so folks essentially, you know, uh, have to figure out how to sort of back out of that apparatus and get in the streets and pressure him. And by, by and large, they, they don't, quite frankly. And that was a problem of that moment. Um, so what I've been trying to think through is, is you know, since movements are so hard to, to sustain, you know, is there a way to, you know, take a lot of their goals and sort of transfer them into um, uh, the, the um, machinery of government, which is how, you know, the majority of well-to-do white Americans are used to experiencing government, right? Like you want something done, you, you call your council person, you attend a school board meeting, and like typically you can make it happen. And that's not been so for, for poor black people. Um, and so I, I try not to poo-poo in my work um, those efforts to do that, right? Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by people who, you know, kind of... Uh, uh, you know, Cornell West calls them a prisoners of hope, right? Who try to make America actually live up to its promises, try to make the country live up to its promises, make democracy work. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, even if you can get it to work for a moment, it's not guaranteed to stay that way because the larger structures of the society, right? Uh, that, that weird uh, sort of um, confluence of, of capitalism, which thrives on inequality, and democratic governance, which promises an equal voice for all people, but you know it's very difficult when it's within a capitalist system. Um, that always mitigates against you know sort of maintaining that proper functioning of American democracy for poor people. And so invariably, even though even after you seize the reins of power, there's a high likelihood that you're going to have to go right back out in the street and do it again. And so I've been focused on that that sort of that that undulating move in and out of the machinery of the state by black activists um, and trying to get a better sense of sort of how and why it happens. We need you to figure that out because, <laughs> um, because it is, you know, the movement is unsustainable. I haven't been to a protest in months, although I'm ready to go. I keep my, mm -hmm. uh, my sign in my car. 
Um, but on a serious note, when, when we do see changes or what people will construe as accountability occur, you want to see more of it and we need to see more of it. So we're, the Debt Project has a reading club, a book club, and uh, one of the books we read was The Purpose of Power by Alicia Garza. Uh, she's uh, very well learned and uh, very well practiced in, in organizing and creating movements. I think what the work she's doing with the Black Futures Lab is probably trying to address the sustainability of movements, uh, and hopefully we'll get there. Uh, and thinking about how her tweet of Black Lives Matter eventually were over a decade or however much time that was turned into a huge mu movement that um, probably peaked last summer after George Floyd was murdered. Um, and also looking at a smaller, you know, that's from, from Twitter, you know, and, and thinking of social media and also thinking of recently in South Carolina, um, the sergeant that assaulted the black man in the neighborhood uh, because a white woman said that um, he, she did, he did something to her. Uh, because of Instagram or Facebook Live or whatever TikTok there was, you know, at his front yard were 50 to hundreds of, of Black folks letting him know that that is not how it's going to be. And he was eventually arrested. Uh, so those are, are two examples of, uh, of social media uh, playing its part in movements. Do you feel that, that uh, those tools will better allow people to pick up the torch of the black power movement or is this a different vein of movement or, or what are your thoughts on social media moving things forward? I, I think that social media is a tool, you know, it, it, it's a tool that, that organizers can use to create much larger publics than they can physically assemble. Right. Um, by the way, you know, it's a, it's a tool that the opposition to some of the movements that we're talking about can use, right? I mean, you know, a lot of people that, that gathered on January 6th were coming from these far-flung places, right? They sort right. of connected through social media. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, it, it doesn't create an advantage, right? It, it, you know, because both sides can weaponize it and both sides have weaponized it. Um, and, and there is a huge downside to social media, which is that, you know, the, the, the sort of way of interacting with the world that social media's algorithms promotes, right? Um, snarky replies, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, sort of dragging people, um, you know, sort of becomes part of our, our culture. And, and can even become a part of movement culture. Sometimes it's a good thing, right? I mean, you can see people reaching out to each other across the expanse of the internet and, and really supporting each other, right? Um, whether it's someone with a GoFundMe page or, or just folks flooding a person's um, um, you know, profile with, with messages of, su of support. Um, but you can also see the opposite, right? I mean, th there's a fascinating story and, and I'm not gonna, give too much away because it, it, he really has to tell it himself. But there's a friend of mine who's a professor who, um, you know, it summarized uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the contents of, of the book, a book written by a young white woman who was a professor and he was on a, a major network. And so they don't let, let you do footnotes 
right, on, on, on major networks, right? And he's sort of a public facing historian. Um, and so, you know, um, it, he couldn't say like, I got this from so-and-so, right? And so what he did to try and make up for the fact that, 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 that he was constrained in that way was he tweeted out like, you know, just did an interview, like, you know, rep the, the amazing work of so-and-so and, and, and tagged her. Um, and that, that young scholar turned around and said, you know, um, this guy stole my work. Like, I, you know, uh, senior professors are always coming for the work of younger professors. And it fit a narrative that, that people were, were sort of using about the academy. And, you know, a couple of posts in, in response to her post, Folks were like, yeah, senior white professors are always exploiting like women and people of color. This is a brother that had done this, right? Uh, and so, you, you know, there's a way in which the sort of anonymity of the internet and like the, the, the really quick response of social media, I think reduces people's attention span, pushes them towards conflict, um, and, you know, sort of allows us just to fight with each other in situations where we don't even necessarily disagree. And if we actually encountered the person, we would never talk to them that way. It was kind of like road rage, right? <laughs> in front mm -hmm. of a keyboard. And so, so I, I think there's pluses and minuses. I mean, from an organizing standpoint, I do worry that um, the, the thing that, you know, if you look at like the 60s generation or even the 90s generation, what they focus on is like the, the personal relationships they build. Um, you know, through organizing. And so like long time spent with individuals, um, getting to know them, uh, you know, helping each other out. Um, and then also the, the, um, the group learning that they did with people, right? What, you know, what the, um, the, the Panthers would call PE, political education, right? And, and a lot of people would bring back the concept in the 90s and in a lot of radical political circles. Um, and I, I don't think that the, you know, the internet is capable of facilitating that, but I don't know that it tends to facilitate that. And so, you know, there's no question that um, social media can allow a person that most people don't know to get 10,000 folks to a march really quickly. Um, but that's not, that's not movement organizing. That's a, that's a, a one-time mobilization. And particularly if you look at the organizing that happened in DC over the summer, um, and the city paper did, I think did a great job of, of covering this. They'll say that like, you know, there's a lot of people who were just sophomores at, you know, GW or something, and they put out a post and next thing you know, it blew up and they're recognized protest leaders in DC. Well, what's their ideology? What are their long-term goals? What is their strategy even beyond marches? Um, how are they translating bodies in the street into changes in policy, changes in behavior, the building of community? And in, in the fever of that moment, like none of those questions were answered. Um, and that, that worries me. You know, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons I got so involved again in that, that whole debate about the emancipation statue. Um, I reached out to the brother who was organizing that stuff. And I was like, do you know about this history? And he's like, I don't care about this history. If one more person tells me about some old black people doing something a hundred years ago, I'll throw up. And I was like, real? Like, like for real, B? Like, that's how, that's what we're doing right now. Then here's a bucket. See if I fuck around and find out. <laughs> I should give you his number, right? <laughs> I'm your Luther. <laughs> 
but but that was you know that was that was sort of what was behind what was being covered on NPR and in the New York Times and in the Washington Post as here's a Black Lives Matter leader attacking a racist statue and like you know people were just swiping and clicking through that and like yeah it's a Black Lives Matter leader you know attacking a racist statue he had no connection to DC BLM in fact in my conversations with him he he you know expressed real strategic differences uh, with DCBLM and had no coordination with them. And so I, I do worry that, that that sort of natural lack of attention that social media generates and, and, the, and the, the blurring of, of the, 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 the larger story that, that social media encourages um, can cause some serious problems for people who are trying to build actual sustainable movements, not just mobilize people really quickly until folks get tired. given what we've seen and um, and thought about over the past year, what's something that you believed last year in 2020 that you do not believe anymore in 2021? I don't think there's any question that the George Floyd protests um, and the pandemic, um, you know, shifted our national politics in ways that are really quite productive. Um, they led to Donald Trump's defeat. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, that is, um, you know, insufficient in the larger sense, but but terribly important in the short term. Um, he could have won. He could have won if he hadn't if he hadn't flubbed the pandemic, right? I mean, that's just it's an unfortunate commentary on on you know um, the, the vast majority of uh, or the, the significant group of white Americans who backed him. Um, mm. Uh, but what it's also done is I think created, um, you know, sort of, uh, social Democrats out of old school, moderate liberals, right? I mean, you know, Joseph Biden was, was sort of a dyed in the wool, um, moderate Democrat in the Bill Clinton mold. And, you know, this, the 2020 turned him into a, a different person. I mean, he's not, he's still Joe, right? You know, he still talks the same, you know, you know, Make sure you stay on that tele teleprompter. You know, um, he still touches people a lot. But um, you know, the fact of the matter is that he is not the the Joe Biden of the, the crime bill. He's not the Joe Biden of the anti-busing amendment, and that is because of people in the street. That is because of George Floyd's murder, um, and, and that is exciting to me. Right, that this you can see the tangible benefits of this movement. I mean. One of the, the, the fascinating aspects of any social movement for me is that, that, that it heightens the contradictions to such an extent that I think it's hard for a lot of people on the ground to see the progress that it's actually making in real time, right? Because, you know, you look around and you see like all these Black people still getting shot. But the reason we see it is because of a success of the movement, which is that, you know, early iterations of BLM forced cops to adopt body cameras, Right. Um, early iterations of BLM, you know, sort of pushed people, just everyday people to gather around and, and begin to, you know, film when the police are interacting with people. Um, and those small changes, you know, sort of create that wedge for larger changes. Um, and so, you know, I'm, 
I'm, I'm heartened by what the, the, what the mobilizations of the past year have been able to do. Um, I'm interested just to see if they can sort of fulfill the, the larger promise um, uh, that I think many activists headed in the street to try and, try and fulfill. Um, that remains to be seen. Is there a personal belief that you held last year that you've since let go of? What moments like these tend to do is, is kind of pull me in, in, into a, a stronger emphasis, but not fundamentally change my understanding. I, I, I have been thinking a lot about, um, you know, the idea of allyship, which I think going into 2020, I just accepted as like something that's okay, right? Like, sure, we can use that language, that's fine. Um, and I've really become quite hostile to it uh, over the course of the past year. Um, and the main reason is, is because I, I, I worry about racial reductionism in this moment. Um, you know, uh, this idea that, you know, sort of white privilege is, is kind of like this, this blanket that envelops all white people. And, and, we, and we forget about some of the teachings of people like Du Bois or uh, Oliver Cromwell, Cromwell Cox, or more recently, Robin Kelly, who was my advisor when I was in graduate school. And they say, look, you know, um, white supremacy is a bad deal for the white working class. It's, it's a way for the, the white upper class to yoke the white working class to it and to divide the working class, which is, of course, multiracial. Um, and, and so this, this idea that like the struggle is black peoples and indigenous peoples and other you know um, oppressed minorities alone and then white people can kind of jump in as allies but feels very discomforting to me in, in, in two levels one on the theoretical because of what i just pointed out right but then also on the personal um you know i wrote chocolate city with chris myers ash uh and you know he's a, a white guy from dc grew up in the chocolate city right um, went to Deal and Wilson, you know, like for a while he was white boy Chris, that was his name, right? And dedicated himself uh, to um, a more just society, you know, founded the Mississippi Freedom Project, which is a freedom school in, in, in uh, Sunflower County, Mississippi, um, wrote about Fannie Lou Hamer for his dissertation in his first book, uh, and has dedicated himself today to um, helping um, uh, refugees from the Middle East resettle in Maine, where he lives. Right, the main, the New Mainers project. Um, I, I grew up, you know, um, with a good friend, good friends with Jerry Berrigan, who was, um, you know, a child of, of the great Catholic worker Berrigan family of Baltimore, uh, who of course inspired the people here in D.C. That uh, Ed Guinan, who created the, the community for creative nonviolence, uh, which is the founder of our largest shelter here in the city down on Fourth Street. Um, and so these are these these folks are to me, um, you know, sort of fellow travelers and comrades, and, and, and um, you know, sort of uh, people who I stand next to in the struggle. They're not sort of backing me up, right? They're not support. Um, you know, they are, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, co-creators uh, as we're attempting to to make um, the, the ideas for a better world. As I think about myself as a historian, but but generally to trying to create a better world, and so. If there's anything I think that 2020 um, sort of pushed me towards, it was becoming hostile to that idea and, and really trying to think about 
um, what Jesse Jackson would have called a rainbow coalition, uh, Fred Hampton would have called a rainbow coalition. And what my own experience as a young person growing up in Baltimore with friends like the Berrigans uh, would lead me to believe is, is uh, a proper way of organizing struggle. What, what music generally, generally in your work and just in general brings you joy? What music do you listen to? Oh man, 90s hip hop. I mean, I, <laughs> I lost my mind last night with the, the, the Med Man, Red Man. Oh, Red Man. I, yes, um, yes. I, I, you know, I, I'll still be in, in, you know, like Whole Foods shopping, like. <laughs> like you and Aaron, that's his spot. Yeah, like the chambers pumping on my, my, um, my headphones. So um, yeah, I mean, it's 90s hip hop. Look, I mean, it, it pervades my, my work. Right. I mean, not only do I just I love it as something that feeds my soul. Uh, I, I even think about like when my first article uh, was uh, that I ever wrote for Manning Marable when he was, he was still alive. He was at Columbia University. Um, I wrote an article called Good at the Game of Tricknology, um, which is a line from Brand Nubian. Right. Good at the game of tricknology, but I have knowledge of myself. You're not fooling me. Right. Um, and that was all about the, the campaign to pass Prop 209 in California, where um, the advocates of ending affirmative action were arguing that their, um, their, their effort to end affirmative action was a civil rights uh, project. They were actually trying to advance civil rights by ending affirmative action. I was like, nah, that's technology. Right? <laughs> I was like, the five percenters told me that on, on the track. Right? And so, so, you know, so a lot of how I just, think about this stuff is informed by, you know, these, these street philosophers, right, uh, who I had grown up listening to. And, you know, for my next book, which is kind of like my first project that's all mine, that is, um, uh, that, that, that I'm, I'm engaging in as a mature historian, right? Um, every chapter is going to begin with a rap verse, you know, from, from the time period uh, in which uh, that, that I'm writing about because it's because the, the book's about the 80s and 90s, right? So it's like that's easy, you know. I get to choose from <laughs> Grandmaster Flash to like Wu Tang. I mean, it's just easy, right? right? Like everything in between. Um, yeah. And if you listen to some of the stuff that, that folks are saying, I mean, it's not hard. Whether it's most deaths mathematics or or, or even like you know. Uh, gang star, you know, um, uh, talking about, am I the target for destruction? What about the system and total corruption, right? So it's like, it's it's really easy to understand, like there was this, this worldview that was that was being shaped for a lot of, for me, by a lot of people that I was listening to. It, it's, it, you know, it, it shapes this work as well, because, you know, turns out you go into archives, what these cats were saying over tracks was true. Thank you so much. It was an absolute delight to um, to chat with you and to hear all these great insights. And we look forward to being in touch again. Yeah, look forward to crossing paths in the near future, or not, yeah, not too distant future, rather. Yeah. And real, real pleasure to talk to two uh, Freedom School alumni. Uh, yes. yes. Thanks. All right, John. All right. Take care. Okay. Take care. Well, that's our episode for this week. A sincere thank you to the good professor G. Derek Musgrove for joining us. Since our conversation, I have visited the Emancipation Statue at Lincoln Park 
and have listened to the brand Nubians. So I don't fall for that technology. Yes, thank you so much, Derek. I have myself revisited the Black Power map and plan to continue to revisit it and share it with friends. I hope you all had a chance to join us on our latest TDPB reading book talk as we discussed Marathon Don't Stop, The Life and Times of Nipsey Hussle. Great talk once again, along with our now friend of TDP, Deontay Bridges, outstanding educator in Atlanta. But now I'm looking forward to our next book, Breathe. Tell me about Breathe, Rhonda. Breathe is a beautiful letter from Dr. Imani Perry to her two sons, Freeman and Issa. And I've just started reading the first couple of chapters and it is gorgeous. It is expansive. It is from the culture, for the culture. And I've also listened to a few of her interviews online so I can really get completely immersed in, in this world and understand the context, the subtext, and all of her explanations. So really looking forward to this book talk and looking forward to hearing what other mamas of Black boys have to say about this work and how it reflects their own experience. I cannot wait to crack it open. The shout outs alone on the back cover have me very excited along with your pre-review. Everybody, make sure you buy it at your local independent bookstore, preferably Black-owned, and join us on Instagram Live on Sunday, May 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our fourth DEP Project Book Talk. Because TDP, be reading. Rhonda, where are you on the internet? Well, I would like to say I'm all over the place, but that's not true. On the socials, I tweet and retweet at educate underscore Rhonda. I was just tweeting about another book I read, Liberty, as I was recommending this text to one of our council members, shout out to council member Robert White. And I post pics of my auntie life on Instagram at Rhonda Henderson and talk books, books and more books at Ruby Reads Chocolate City, also on Instagram. Aaron Harvey, are you on the socials? Absolutely. You can catch me most days on IG at Aaron.Stallworth. That is where I go to post everything in my dad life, work life, life life. And please continue to catch the DAP project also on IG at the.dep.project. And we're also getting into the Twitter, Twitter, Twitter sphere, Twitter, Twitter, Twitterverse, Twitterverse. There we go. At the underscore. No, take it back. DAP underscore project on Twitter. Check us out there as well. Thank you for rocking with us this week and every week that you rock with us. Resistance is a highway with many lanes and I hope you find yours. Take care, folks.